Hey, during basketball season, I used to ride to high school with a teammate of mine named Mike. We practiced before school, and Mike was old enough to drive. He had a VW Bug, and Mike was six foot five. So it didn't really matter that his windshield wipers didn't work because Mike could just stick his arm out the window and he could wipe the rain off the glass with the leather sleeve of his letter jacket. It was really cool. I mean, who needs windshield wipers when you got a combat car and a long wingspan? You know, there are parts of an automobile that may or may not work, but it has little impact on a car's drivability. I mean, so what if the cigarette lighter goes on the blink? I don't even smoke. Even the AC is no big deal in the wintertime. But there are some automobile systems that are absolutely crucial. I mean, if your engine block cracks, or if you throw a rod, or if the brakes go out, your car sits in the driveway. It's not moving. And likewise, there are aspects of church life that are essential if a church is going to reach its destination. And the one indispensable part that a church needs to run well is doctrine. For the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about church doctrine. Now here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to a pastor. Pastor Timothy, verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Notice Paul tells the church and Timothy to teach no other doctrine. Several years ago, I got two tickets to opening day at Augusta National. I mean, master's badges are the toughest ticket in sports. Zach and I were so excited. After walking the course and admiring the beauty, we plopped down on the 18th green, and we struck up a conversation with a fellow patron. This guy was a Missouri bartender who traded kegs to fraternities for basketball tickets, which he then swapped with a university booster for master's passes. Kind of shows you where he's coming from. We were talking golf when suddenly the bartender changed the subject. He asked me what I did for a living. I said, well, I'm a pastor. His eyes lit up. He says, wow, I've always wanted to talk to one of you guys. I have a question. He says, I heard pastors go to the cemetery, seminary, semi-something. They go to semi-something for three years. I mean, three years. I always wondered why so much school. All you guys got is one book. And I thought to myself, how insightful. This Missouri bartender has a better grasp on our priorities than most pastors. As Christians, all we got is one book. You know, in the Middle East, Jews and Christians are known as people of the book. We believe God has spoken and recorded His words in written form. God has a book. 
It's called the Bible. And we are all about the Bible. If you want to know the path to God and the ways of God, you don't climb a mountain and stare at your navel. You don't chant a mantra and go into a trance. You don't contort into some lotus position and smoke sacred mushrooms. You don't sit down next to a waterfall and visualize world peace. In order to meet God, you don't actualize or visualize or meditate or channel your ancestors or free your inner child. You open up your Bible and you read God's Word. God has revealed His timeless truths in the pages of Scripture. And sound doctrine is the proper understanding and application of the Bible. To define the word doctrine, think doctor. Doctor was originally a Latin term that meant teacher. Thus, doctrine refers to a body of teaching. And the Bible is exactly what the doctor ordered. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's been said doctrine is what to believe. Correction is what not to believe. Instruction is how to live. Reproof is how not to live. You see, the Bible has faith and life covered from every angle. Obviously, there are facts not mentioned in the Bible. I mean, nowhere does the Bible tell us that water's boiling point is 212 degrees Fahrenheit, or that penguins can hold their breath for six minutes, or that a sneeze exits the nose at 100 miles per hour. The Bible may lack some facts, but it's certainly not short on truth. All that humans need to know about God and about life and about us are packaged in the Bible. The Bible doesn't contain everything there is to know, but it does provide us everything we need to know to live healthy, holy, happy lives. You see, humans have a malady. It goes by a multitude of terms. Transgression, darkness, ignorance, rebellion, disobedience, shortcomings, iniquity, just to name a few. Most of the time, the Bible just calls it sin. And Dr. God has written us a prescription. His antidote for sin, his doctrine, is the Bible. In the Bible, we find the truth that sets us free from sin. Now, here's another word to consider. Sound, as in sound doctrine. What does that mean? Well, think of how naval vessels navigate. They sail on the surface of the water, but they follow maps that chart the ocean floor. Ships will use active sonar to track submarines and determine the depth and configuration of the ocean bottom. The sonar emits a pulse of sound or a ping that hits the target and then echoes back to the ship. And the properties of that sound vibration enable the sailors on board to determine what they cannot see. And so it is with sound doctrine. You see, the body of God's teaching is the Bible. And when my interpretation and application of the Bible corresponds with God's intention, 
In other words, when the ping echoes off the ocean floor and back to the ship, then the teaching is said to be clear and sure and sound. Sound doctrine is the echo of what God has already certainly said. Whereas false doctrine doesn't ping. It doesn't echo God's infallible word. It's what somebody else has conjured up. It's the concoction of man. This is why Paul refers to the church in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 as the pillar and ground of the truth. God calls His church to produce the ping, to echo back the message that He sent to us in Scripture, sound doctrine, not the uncertain sounds and confusions and cacophonies of man's wisdom. Here's the difference between sound doctrine and false doctrine. In the words of the old hillbilly preacher, when God's remedy is understood and applied correctly, it's sound doctrine. When it's misunderstood and misapplied, it's false doctoring. To be healthy, you need sound doctoring. Paul tells Timothy to teach no other doctrine than the Bible. You see, a car can have a slick paint job and diamond tuck interior and wide tires and no spinners and even a moonroof. But if the engine block is cracked, you got to get another ride. Likewise, a church rolls on sound doctrine. Without it, we're up on blocks. And Paul identifies why some Christians have gone awry and embraced the wrong doctrine. You see, there are two ways for a group of believers to get off track through speculation and through deception. Both will steer us astray. Notice verse 4. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Paul will mention this danger again in chapter 4, verse 7. He'll say, reject profane and old wives' fables. In other words, rather than sticking to the Bible, some people go beyond the Bible and they indulge in speculation. They get off into conspiracy theories and fanciful myths and hidden codes and inferences that can neither be validated nor refuted. Be careful when a Christian's focus is on tabloid rather than truth. Here's a fable that's gained traction in today's pop culture. It's Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code is 480 pages of nonsense. It's a myth without a single shred of historical corroboration. And yet it sold 80 million copies and been translated into 44 languages and even turned into a Tom Hanks movie. According to the Da Vinci Code, Jesus doesn't die and rise again. He runs off to the south of France with Mary Magdalene and gets frisky. They end up with a bunch of kids and form a secret society. The Knights Templar and Leonardo da Vinci are in on the conspiracy. According to Dan Brown, look closely at da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper, and it's Mary next to Jesus, not John. And I say, that's a cup of crock. That's horrible. It's garbage. 
It's a novel. It's nothing but a silly myth without any historical legitimacy, yet gullible people bite it hook, line, and sinker. People will read this novel who have never even read the New Testament. That's not right. Paul says, beware of fables and endless genealogies. Endless genealogies. You could say endless arguments. That's what he's saying. You know, there are some biblical teachings that are considered mysteries. They pose questions that God chooses not to answer. I mean, the Trinity reveals to us God's nature, but, but it also shows the, the mystery of God. Predestination and free will. Divine sovereignty. Why bad things happen to good people. I mean, we can go round and round on these issues. We can try to reconcile all of the scriptures to our point of view, rather than just admitting that we're not privy to all the information. I mean, some truths are just too big for my brain. Trust me, if I, with my little pea brain, could decipher all there is to know about God, He wouldn't be much of a God, would He? Christianity assumes some mystery. It requires faith. There are truths that come to us through God's revelation, not necessarily human reason. And we believe all the Bible teaches, not just what makes sense to us. Too much speculation can knock us off the puck. Stuff like UFOs and the Mayan calendar and the Bermuda Triangle and the Gospel and the Zodiac and hidden Bible codes. I mean, I've heard folks explain how hidden Bible codes cryptically predicted the 1995 assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And yet they ignore the verses in the Bible about loving your brother. They don't read those. Why look for what's hidden when you're not even obeying what's obvious? Hey, the deepest, most profound truth I've ever heard is, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Once I've exhausted the depth of that truth, then I'll start unraveling the number 666 and identify the Antichrist, all right? If Paul were writing today, he'd add, nor give heed to every crazy email that ends up in your inbox <laughs> or all the blogs that appear on the internet. I mean, some folks pay more attention to conspiracy theories on the World Wide Web than they do the glorious gospel that is preserved in the Bible. I mean, why do folks always drink from the toilet while there's a fountain of living water sitting on our shelf? And yet some people do. This past week, man, that's all I could do. I watched five minutes, all I could endure. I watched five minutes of the Glenn Beck show. He was deep off into unraveling the left-wing conspiracy that's going to take over the world. I don't know if it's true or false. Probably a little bit of both. It was certainly full of Glenn Beck. And yet not one word I heard encouraged me to love God or to love my brother. And it hit me. If I listen to Glenn Beck more than read my Bible, my heart is going to be filled up with fear and worry. And I'm not going to walk in the victory and the fullness of joy the Bible promises me. You see, notice what Paul says is the result of all this speculation. Read again verse 4. He says, which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. When you go beyond the Bible... 
When you focus on your pet doctrines instead of sound doctrine, believers lose their common ground. They end up arguing and polarizing and churches split apart. A church loses its unifying force when it majors on speculation. You see, when you stray from the cross of Jesus Christ, you walk away from the world's only level ground. Every other place in the world has a pecking order. You can set yourself apart. You can do this or that and rise above your peers in your own eyes. You can gain high ground. But at the cross, it's level. We're all equal at the cross. We're all despicable sinners who nailed Jesus to the tree. We're all in need of God's grace. The ground is level at the cross. Understand, here's the difference between Christianity and religion. Paul goes on to tell Timothy in verse 5, Now the purpose of the commandment is love. From a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith, for which some, having strayed, turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Notice this sound doctrine produces love and purity and freedom and faith. But when folks focus on speculation, paranoia sets in. They, they turn inward. They become self-preservationists. Suddenly it's all about them. To cover their own flank, they start labeling good guys and bad guys. They set up all these kinds of laws so that they can set themselves above others. If you don't pass their litmus test, all of a sudden you're one of the unenlightened in their eyes. You see, Paul warns Timothy that speculation spawns lawmaking. People will make themselves teachers of the law who follow speculation. Understand the purpose of religion. It's true of Jewish religion, Muslim religion, Eastern religion, even pseudo-Christian religion. All religion defines clean from unclean. Every religion has its own set of standards and taboos and rituals that enable it to label the pure and the defiled. Often liberal critics will attack religion as the enemy of unity. They claim that religion is the great divider in the world. Rather than bring us together, it keeps us apart. It separates us into factions and inflames hostilities. And in a sense, this is true. Every religion divides humanity into holy and unholy. And no other religion did this as comprehensively and as rigorously as did Judaism. The Jews divided up all of life. What you ate, how you washed, the sacrifice you offered, the people you hung out with, the house that you lived in. It was categorized clean or unclean, pure or impure, holy or unholy. And Paul lived, he grew up in this environment of legalism. Paul had been a rabbi, in fact. He was a Pharisee, supposedly the holiest of the Jews. Yet after living under religion, Paul said that all of his righteousness was not even worth a bag of filthy rags. Paul said he was worse than unrighteous. He was self-righteous and proud. Honest Jews like Paul, after having lived under the law, were forced to an uncomfortable conclusion. Everybody is a bad guy. In the ranks of humanity, there are no good guys. 
This is why Christianity picks up where Judaism leaves off. We say this all the time, but its full implications don't often hit us. Christianity is not a religion, and that's true. Christianity is about salvation, not religion. You see, religion chooses sides. It picks out good guys and bad guys. It assigns white hats and black hats. It awards merit badges to folks for accumulating filthy rags. That's religion. But that's not Christianity. The gospel declares that we're all bad guys. There's only one good guy, and his name is Jesus. And the goal of Christianity is to bring everybody to Jesus. That's it. According to chapter 1, verse 11, sound doctrine is all about this glorious gospel, bringing people to Jesus. Our focus should be on God's grace, the unsought, unbought, unwrought love of God. I've heard grace defined as love that's on the house. I like that. You don't have to do anything to earn it. It's love you could never deserve. I love Dennis the Menace, the cartoon. Dennis and his buddy Joey, they're on their way home from Mrs. Wilson's house. Their hands are full of cookies. On their faces are big chocolate smudges and great big smiles. And that's when Joey says to Dennis, I wonder what we did to deserve this. And Dennis, who normally acts like a menace, responds with the perfect definition of grace. He says, look, Joey, Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies not because we're nice, but because she's nice. That's how you got saved. It's not because you're nice, it's because God's nice. He loves you. He made a way. He showed you grace. At the end of chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy of his testimony. Paul, he says, was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent or angry man. But the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I was the poster child for grace. He calls himself the chief of sinners. But God set a precedent with Paul's conversion. God picked out the toughest nut to crack. And he used his mercy to turn him into peanut butter. If God can save Paul, he can save us all. Only grace could make Paul's heart right. In verse 15, he credits his salvation to its source. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul obtained and maintained a right standing with God, not by keeping the rules or following a plan or a program, but by faith in God's grace and in the work of Jesus on the cross. Speculation results in disputes and division, but sound doctrine produces love. And every church needs an abundance of God's love. For 30 years, this has been your pastor's goal. I've wanted our church to be a grace place. I don't care if we're known as a cool church or a large church or an innovative church or even a miracle-working church. I just want to be known as an outpost of God's grace. If your life is a mess and you don't have it all together and you're sick and you're wounded or you're bleeding, I want you to know that you can find grace at Calvary Chapel rather than a country club. I want us to be an emergency room. You see, sound doctrine provokes us to love, whereas speculation gets us off track.
And yet speculation isn't the only threat to our spiritual health. There's also deception. Listen to Paul's warning in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You see, speculation goes beyond what the Bible teaches. Deception distorts or denies the clear teaching of the Bible. You need to know that not everything labeled spiritual is godly or biblical. Walk into the spirituality section at Borders Books, and you'll find titles by everybody from Billy Graham and Max Licato to Sai Baba and the Dalai Lama. I mean, today's world is fascinated with everything spiritual. In fact, here are a few titles from Borders Spirituality section. Mother Earth Spirituality. The Bushman Way of Tracking God. But oh, I want to know what the Bushman Way. Ladder to the Moon. The Spirituality of Pets. Goddess Unmasked, the rise of neo-pagan feminist spirituality. Oh boy, that's quite a read, I'm sure. Trust me, none of these books echo the Bible. None of these books are sound doctrine. Paul tells Timothy there are deceiving spirits in the world. There are demons spewing doctrine. When Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. These fallen angels are now deceiving spirits who inspire false teachers. They lie in hypocrisy. Their goal is to get you to depart from the faith. And they do it by writing books and hosting seminars and appearing on Oprah and creating websites and blogs. They even wear skinny little black ties and ride bikes and knock on your door. Don't say I didn't warn you. If you open up to all things spiritual you'll eventually get visited by one of these evil spirits. We need discernment. And here's what the deceptive teacher will emphasize. He's forbidding to marry, Paul writes, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Notice this. The false teacher forbids what God considers good. He believes that through abstinence and self-deprivation and an ascetic lifestyle, he can win God's favor. His religion is all about what's prohibited. Pleasing God for him is doing without. It's fasting legitimate pleasures. This is his, the false teacher's view of spirituality and of, and of sound doctrine. Reminds me of the desert monks, monks of the 4th century. These guys would live on a strict diet. Some of them ate only bread, salt, and water. That was it. Grazier monks, as they were called, they lived in the forest. And they grubbed for roots and wild herbs. Some wore a loincloth made out of thorns. Oh my. That could get a little uncomfortable. But here was their thinking. The more uncomfortable they got, the holier they were. There was a monk named Simeon Stylites 
who set the standard for austerity. He lived on top of a column for 37 years and prostrated himself 1,244 times a day. He thought the more he suffered for Jesus' sake, the holier he became. And this isn't just ancient saints. This isn't just their mindset. It's followed the history of the church. In the 1700s, American Shakers prohibited sex and marriage among their members. That's why they died out so quickly. Quakers and Amish reject modern conveniences and stylish colors even today. They believe there's a purity that can be achieved by living a simpler lifestyle. Even today, some Christians base their righteousness on the fact that they're free from certain vices. They don't smoke or drink or cuss or chew or run around with women who do. Yet keeping your nose clean doesn't alter the condition of your heart. You can live in a cave and eat nothing but communion bread and still have a heart full of lust and greed and pride and hate. What makes a person right with God is not what we do without, but it's what we take in. I become pleasing to God by receiving His nature, in His spirit, in His power, in His love, in His forgiveness, in His joy, in His acceptance. Jesus says it's not what comes out, goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but it's what comes out of his heart. Righteousness, real righteousness, is a matter of the heart. Christianity is not me trying to clean up my act. It's me trusting God to make me new. Religion conforms us from the outside in through these demands. God's Spirit transforms us from the inside out through His love. Religion is all about keeping laws. Christianity is all about falling in love with Jesus. This is sound doctrine. Once I receive His love, I want to love Him in return. I want to repent and resist sin and walk in purity and love others the way I've been loved if I truly understand His love for me. You see, the false teacher, he takes what God calls good and he makes it off limits. Mormons don't drink coffee. But God created those little coffee beans. And I'm glad He did. Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian. I feel sorry for them. Because God created good red meat. Sausage and beef God created. Catholicism denies its priests the opportunity to marry and enjoy a healthy sexual relationship. And it's sad. It puts undue pressure on these poor guys when they try to be celibate. You know, it reminds me of the Pope. He went to heaven and went straight to the library, to the reference section. He wasn't there for long when the angel at the front desk heard this blood-curdling scream. He comes running back to check on the Pope. He He's sitting there, looking down at a book, and he's just, he's just pointing his finger down at the page, and he's shaking his head, and he's muttering to himself, there's an R. There's an R. It says celebrate. <laughs> he had made a big mistake. <laughs> hey, when God created beans and meat and sex, he said that it was good. And he hasn't changed his mind. 
You please God not by abstinence, but by thanking God for His blessings and then using them for His glory. Share the gospel with a friend over a cup of coffee. That's great. Enjoy a barbecue fellowship after church. Get home and snuggle up to your spouse. That's even better. Life is too short to forfeit God's blessings. Holiness means enjoying God's gifts. You see, the emphasis in Christianity is not what we can do for God, but it's what God has done for us. Holiness is not about self-effort or self-denial. That only makes me proud and pompous. It's about receiving God's grace and mercy and power. That's what humbles me. It's not about what you and I can give up for God. It's about what God has given up to save us. And I love what Paul says to Timothy in verse 4. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. I love what Paul tells us here. God created nothing inherently evil. All that God created, he said that it was good. Of course, what God has meant for good, sinful men can misuse and abuse. In fact, man is an expert at taking God's blessings and turning it into a curse. The other night, I, I watched a television special about marijuana. Did you know that for centuries, hemp fiber was used for legitimate purposes? To make clothes and paper? Supposedly, Thomas Jefferson wrote a draft of the Declaration of Independence on a piece of hemp paper. The word canvas is embedded in the term cannabis. In colonial America, cannabis plants were used to make ropes and sails. And yet, do you think people today farm cannabis to make paper? People smoke weed to check out, man, and to get high, and to stop caring for a while. And it becomes a gateway to more dangerous drugs, and it gets used and abused in evil ways. You see, substances like tobacco and alcohol, they're not evil in and of themselves. As a Christian, there's nothing evil about coming in from outside on a hot summer day and popping the top on a cold one. You're free to enjoy a glass of wine with a good steak or relax by lighting up a cigar or pipe as long as your participation is in moderation and that you don't cause someone else to stumble. You're free to use and enjoy what God created. On the other hand, you're not free to buy a 24-pack of Budweiser and see how fast you can get drunk or chain-smoke yourself to death or lock yourself up and drown your sorrows with a cheap bottle of wine. Use what God created. But if you misuse it or abuse it, it becomes sin. And the same applies to sex. Of all God's gifts, sex is the most sacred and fun and pleasurable in fact, God safeguards it by confining it to marriage. You see, this is why God wants men to grow up. So that they can get married. And then have sex and sire kids and coach Little League of all things. That's good. Of course you have to get a job first. A real job. And, and for some of you guys, you're going to have to get a date first. <laughs> Need to work on that. 
But don't let anyone convince you that it's more pleasing to God to be single. God created marriage. Godly families are a witness to the world. See, there is nothing evil about sex and marriage. Evil people will abuse and misuse sex in selfish, illegitimate ways. But that doesn't mean that God forbids it. Spill a glass of water and it doesn't mean I'm going to stop drinking water. Rather than abstain from marriage, we need to bring God into sex and marriage. If you're married, the next time you and your spouse farm out the kids and put put on some cool jazz, light one of those scented candles. Start the foreplay with prayer and with Bible reading. Paul says all things are sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Bring God into the evening. You see, this is what Paul's telling us. Bring God into all of your life. Bring God into your drink and into your food and into your sex. Bring God into all of your life. Bring God into your marriage. And you'll enhance its enjoyment and you'll glorify God. God wants us to redeem what sin has spoiled. Not abstain or run away from it. This is sound doctrine. Let me close with Paul's encouragement to Timothy in chapter 4 verse 6. He says, if you instruct the brethren in these things... You will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. This week we defined good doctrine. Next week we're going to talk about what's involved in being that good minister. Father, we thank you for your words today. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts. Lord, help us to live out our faith correctly, accurately. Help us, Lord, not to get sidetracked with speculation and deception. Lord, help us to, to major on sound doctrine. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your mercies, Lord. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Lord, thank you for every good and wonderful gift you've given us. Help us to enjoy your gifts to the fullest and to sanctify them through the Word of God in prayer. Help us to be about including you in, into all of our lives and redeeming every part of our lives, making it glorifying to you, making and enhancing its pleasure for us. Help us, Lord, to be Christians who go out and who redeem their world and make it more like Jesus. We love you, Lord. We pray that you'll bless and work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.